welcome to the CND podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm the clinical editor. Today I'll be speaking to Oksana Pysik on the long-term effects of COVID-19. Oksana is a senior teaching fellow and University College London lead for the outbreak of infectious diseases and the Global Citizenship Programme. Oksana spoke recently during the CND webinar at the Clinical Pharmacy Congress and we talked about the long-term effects of COVID-19. Oksana spoke about her top three concerns about the long-term effects on patients who've been infected with the virus. You can listen to the highlights of the webinar over on the CND website. I followed up with Oksana after the webinar to ask her a few more questions. This is what she had to say. So what challenges are we facing with regards to developing a vaccine for COVID-19? Well, we have a very robust pipeline of different types of vaccines, and some have totally new technologies and platforms, which is very exciting. And of course, the more vaccine candidates, the more opportunities we have for success, because when we look at sort of that valley of death in vaccine development, the typical success rate is only 10%. So the fact that we currently have over 200 candidate vaccines that are at some stage of development, and 38 of those are currently in human trials, and about eight or nine are entering phase three trials. So phase three being the biggest and most expensive part of any clinical trial. And there's several others that are currently in phase one to two, so they're in sort of earlier stages of development, but probably within the next two months, they'll move along the timeline. So again, with over 200 that are using, again, different types of viral vectors, so we can have protein-based or live attenuated virus, but then also there's the new mRNA, DNA vaccines, which are new platforms that haven't been used before. Sort of at the forefront we have, which many people have heard a lot about are the AstraZeneca Oxford, so that's the recombinant viral vector vaccine, and Pfizer BioNTech, and that's the mRNA vaccine, that's a totally new technology. So those are at the forefront, but again, as I said, there's a lot that are being developed, and um, we probably will see phase three, some of these start to wrap up by the end of this year. So Typically, for a large-scale trial in phase three, that's about 30,000 to 60,000 people. But we will have, or it looks like the ones at the forefront are on track to finish by the end of the year. Now, if they're able to stick to that timeline, that means the first doses might begin to arrive in countries in the middle of 2021, so around the second or third quarter. Your question was about what are some of the challenges about these vaccines and of course doing the large-scale manufacturing for what will be the largest pharmaceutical allocation process ever undertaken in history. That's going to be in some ways even more difficult than clearing those last hurdles on safety and efficacy. The fact that we have enough positive early results to get us that far means we're on the right track towards development. We sort of overcome some of the largest hurdles so far. But it's interesting, even if we look in to be able to get enough glass vials and the other, just the hardware that goes with vaccines, and then thinking about the 
at site development to be able to distribute that is going to be an enormous challenge. So the WHO is working with countries because we're talking about, okay, so this timeline is about 2021. It's not really going to be available for everyone at that time. So there will have to be a prioritization system. And the WHO has suggested that it should be based on frontline health workers, vulnerable groups, older people who are the highest risk. And and if we think about it, that really makes a lot of sense. And this has been developed in partnership with some of the member states. Now, the COVAX facility, which our listeners might have heard about, this is organized by WHO, but also Gavi, so that's funded by the Gates family, and CEPI, and they're working through this COVAX facility essentially to ensure that there's more equitable access towards those vaccines in building of manufacturing capabilities, but also having to buy that supply ahead of time so that 2 billion doses can be equitably distributed by the end of the year. Now, the issue being that there have been 75 countries that have submitted expressions of interest and another 90 that are have signed up to it. Some of the major players, so we're talking US, China, and Russia have not. So what we have seen is a bit of what I call vaccine nationalism, which is another challenge because it is an obstacle towards multilateralism and being able to cooperate for essentially developing that we have this global problem that requires a global solution. And that individual going at it alone approach in the end is not the wisest strategy because we live in a globalized world. So if one part of the world doesn't have access to vaccines and the the virus continues to spread at a, let's say, rampantly, then it's only a matter of time that'll come back to other countries that do have access to vaccines. So we really do have to be working more closely together on that. Does that mean if one of those countries were to develop a vaccine first, it would maybe be even more difficult then for them to distribute, you know, that aren't working and collaboratively with them? For instance, if it is developed outside of one of the countries and they haven't signed up to this partnership, in some ways that could provide some obstacles as well. And what we did see back in, there was the swine flu, is that even in 2009, although promises were made, there was delay on delivery. And this aspect of hoarding vaccines for national use first is a pattern that when we look to the past. So trying to keep that in mind and realize that politics has a huge role to play in this, as much as we've heard over and over in the media about the attempts to non-politicize it, it, it's almost been impossible to separate the two. So looking back in those lessons from previous outbreaks of diseases, we see that there is a problem with distribution, hoarding happens, and trying to find international agreements and frameworks around that to prevent that may not even be enough, really, because there isn't really a way to enforce it. It's really interesting. And just something that came into my head there, so you were saying that they're going to try and prioritise the vaccine for frontline workers and those that are vulnerable. What's to stop people, say, for example, buying it privately or, you know, if they have a lot of money and they want to get access to the vaccine, why do they combat that? 
there will be a risk factor in terms of trying to seek it in alternative routes. Already since the beginning of the pandemic, we have seen a huge uptick in substandard and falsified medical products, including PPE test kits, as well as hydroxychloroquine. There were over 300 hospitals and pharmacies in which these falsified chloroquine was identified in Cameroon and other countries on the African continent following all of this sort of media hype. So if people do try to buy it, a vaccine, once it does become available, the UNODC is the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime, and, and they do predict that their criminal trade might be usually focused on, let's say, arms or weapons, right? But given the vast profits and the focus on all this attention on coronavirus, many criminal groups have already switched over to use their existing criminal networks, etc., to push fake products. This is nothing new. We've seen this historically as well after World War II and there was a shortage of antibiotics. This occurred. If we look in the 17th century to the plague, there were quacks rampant. So during crisis is a kind of peak time for people to take advantage. And as I said, the UNODC predicts that uh, once a vaccine becomes available, this will be one of the most falsified products that people will try to push on websites to make it seem like you can get preferred or first access. But it'll be very unlikely that people will be able to really bypass the national arrangements <laughs> made between governments to access a uh, legitimate vaccine. That is looking to the future. One of the things that the WHO and other UN agencies and regulatory bodies are very concerned about being able to A, ensure that the public is aware and careful, but B, to try and shut down websites like this, because as soon as you close one, another pops up. So it's a bit of a whack-a-mole problem. And again, it, it's been hard enough just with the types of medical diagnostics, etc., that we've been having to use so far. So that's one concern, I think, that people don't instinctively think of, but it's looming. It's just around the corner for us. And I guess it's a case of just making sure there's enough education out there to know that these are not real medicines or falsified and people need to make sure that they're properly telling patients what they should be looking for. Exactly. And this is the role of pharmacists, essentially, when talking to the public about what is a safe way to access medicines and that a lot of these websites will be operating illegally and just to ensure that they know what the formal process is, what steps they should be taking. And if they're outside of that, what risk they're putting themselves at. And really, um, what I think is very interesting as well is that in Canada, which I'm Canadian, so <laughs> living in London now, but uh, 15 years ago I moved to this country. But what I think has been very interesting development in the role of pharmacy there is that they have set up testing sites on pharmacy premises. So that's a bit more complicated because they do still have to send the sample back to labs, but it could be possible that once there is evaluated and safe kind of rapid testing or near at point of care testing that this could be a natural area for pharmacists to move towards and in those conversations when they talk to patients about testing or, or any other advice that they're giving each of these conversations is an opportunity to ensure that uh, 
they are following or getting their medicines from safe places. And it might just be asking a few questions about what they're currently, how, especially during lockdown, you know, how did they deal with that? Which steps did they take? Because in my experience, unfortunately, it's not just patients, but even a lot of healthcare professionals, especially newly qualified, when it's talking about how to verify a legal online pharmacy, what you know, what you need to click, <laughs> what does the logo look like, you know, sometimes surprisingly awareness can be low. So I think there has to be a huge push on this because I see that there's going to be a monsoon ahead of us with this. And already there have been articles in The Lancet by other research groups that have been active in this area as founder of UCL Fight the Fakes as a signatory of it on the parallel pandemic of substandard and falsified medicines. So while this hasn't been, I think, the focal point, I would still really ensure that even now people are careful about where they're getting tests from if they're not authorized by the appropriate bodies. I'm kind of on the same theme. I guess you mentioned that this vaccine's being developed fairly quickly. So what advice will we give patients who are concerned about the fact that it's being developed so quickly and there's no long-term studies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's actually a really reasonable concern to have. You know, we've heard over and over again, it takes 10 years to develop a medicine any person would be a bit shocked to think, well, how did we crunch 10 years into this current time frame? But that's in normal times when everyone has different priorities, different companies are looking at different types of treatments. And really, there has never been this type of one primary goal or incentive that has driven everyone's purpose in one direction. The speed of vaccine development in this instance has been extraordinary. Chinese scientists published the genomic sequence on January 11th and set after that, the first phase one trial started eight to 10 weeks after. And that's a world record in itself, that first step on getting the genome sequenced of the virus and then starting eight to 10 weeks later, the first phase one trial. So we were very quick to act on that and be able to close the first step. And then since then, the WHO has been involved in accelerating research and development efforts large companies have paired with academic groups and essentially where competition has really been the name of the game not just in pharmaceutical industry but you know we're also talking amongst clinicians and the wider environment collaboration has now been unprecedented we do see that pharmaceutical companies are working with other teams and driving their technology forward and although yes we do see sort of like a national level, some of that competition occurring. On the whole, there has been so much openness and putting your research out there, pre-print, where before people might be more guarded about their results. That's completely gone out the window because of the gravity of the current situation, how we've had to put our economy to a near halt and almost some form of lockdown occurred in so many different countries. So. I would also say that sort of rule of how long it takes to develop something doesn't really apply when you have really the best and brightest working on these innovations day and night, around the clock, trying to get an answer. All the, all the people who have put themselves forward to be volunteers, it's just almost like a non-comparable situation. So I would say that speed is also reflective of what is possible when we kind of unite humanity. I do think that's a 
a really positive message that has come out of this in these solidarity vaccine trials. And that on the whole, most of us would have also had some form of vaccine from childhood. So when we think about these growing anti-vaccine movements, when we look at really the uptake is extremely high globally, we've been able to eradicate the smallpox through the use of vaccines. Polio is now eradicated from the continent of Africa. And really, it's only active, I believe, in Pakistan at the moment. So huge progress has been made through vaccination programs that have enhanced human life, extended life expectancy. So as a, a broad brush strokes, when you look at the history of vaccines, it's, it's really been one of the key points in uplifting humanity in terms of what's been possible. So I think we shouldn't lose sight of that because many of us don't remember iron lung of polio or, or how horrible these infectious diseases can be. So there is that temptation to conflate the flu with something like coronavirus, even though it's much more lethal. And then to also just really have this understanding of what is possible when collaboration occurs, when there is this heightened urgency, but also the scrutiny of these trials, just the amount of media attention and way that people are going to be evaluating it. There's no way that this is going to be able to hide anything under the radar. It's just not going to be possible. So all of the resources are being poured into this one direction. All of us are aligned in trying to support the best possible outcome. And I think that's why it's possible for us to have really accelerated at the speed that we have. And I hope that really shows us like when we come out of the pandemic that we continue to kind of take a collaborative approach towards scientific innovation, because now we do see what is possible when we are on the same page. And then again, yeah, another important role of pharmacists where they can educate patients and reassure them that when a vaccine is available, that they should take it and the best resources have been poured into it. Absolutely. And it will be likely that pharmacists and other pharmacy staff, according to Matt Hancock's earlier announcement, I mean, pharmacists will be critical in delivering these vaccines once they do become available. And it could very well be that depending on what risk group you fall into, you might be better suited for a different type of vaccine. I think it's going to be really unlikely that all populations will be receiving the same one. learning can we take forward from the last six months to protect global health? I know you've um, mentioned a few things, but is there anything else? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the previous point was around the emphasis on collaboration and cooperation at an international level, but equally, I think investing in public health groups and bodies. So in the United States, just before the pandemic, a massive move to defund and cut, etc. In the UK here, we have had the dissolution of PAG for an entirely new body right in the middle of a pandemic as well. And one of the biggest problems we face is and continues to be around testing and tracing and the capacity. And when the coronavirus reached the UK, we had only eight PHE labs. So just woefully underprepared. So I do think that you have to plan for these things because 
really WHO has on its list of you know top 10 health risks for as long as I can remember pandemics and infectious disease have been right up there there are plenty of examples in history as well to indicate this zoonotic transfer is uh, happening and happening now at a faster rate because of all of these other problems around deforestation urbanization people living in closer to each other as well as our eating habits so being closer in contact with animals and all of the climate change, all of this being linked together towards the risk of viruses hopping over into humans and through animals, it is more likely. So when we know that, when we see these elements are all linked, I think it's viewing global health as not just, you know, one thing where you give a medicine and that's going to solve the whole thing. We're going to have to look at it in a more holistic way to see how are we able to reduce this risk based on these policies that seem external to health, that seem like somebody else's problem to solve. And also just on a really practical level, ensure that our public health bodies have the resources, the expertise that they need to really jump into action. Speed is the name of the game here for any outbreak response. So again, I would say investing in public health, cooperating with other countries for more coordinated research. We're stronger when we know what works and what doesn't. And I'd say also ensuring that the communication is crystal clear that's coming from the government to people on health behaviors. If we look in the last six months, the countries that have had a more consistent messaging, there's almost more clarity on what's expected of people to do, how to mend their behaviors, how to reduce their own personal risk. When that starts to change every week, people can start to become frustrated and stop really falling with that advice is when it isn't consistent. So I think those are the, the, the top three in terms of learning what hasn't gone so well, what we need to focus on in, in the future. And the testing capacity falls into ensuring that we have a very robust public health framework that I, originally there was this idea that incubation period for coronavirus, it is longer than for the flu. So for the flu, it's harder to contact trace. And it appears that modeling based on flu went into some of the advice given about whether we should abandon the test and trace strategy. And in the end, we're learning that actually we need to isolate those infectious individuals if we don't want to go into mass isolation, which has catastrophic economic, mental health, and other health consequences. Because so we need to keep those essential services running. That was all really great points that you made there, and I completely agree with you about the consistent messaging. People may be just becoming tired of actually following messaging whenever they're confused and they don't really know where they should be looking and who they should be listening to. Absolutely. Strong leadership at a time like this, when there is so much uncertainty, when there is so much fear, when there is so much misinformation. I mean, that's another aspect in terms of a harder problem to solve in terms of pointing people towards legitimate and fact-checked, verify. The UN is now running a campaign on fact-checking, on verifying information because it's been such a problem. And this is where I see tech companies actually stepping up and flagging false information. And that has to happen more frequently. But this is moving in the right direction. We do see that Facebook and Google have 
been consulting with the WHO on how to fight misinformation because, again, that can lead people to believe dangerous lies and put themselves and other people at risk. And it's extremely unfair to others when that occurs. Unfortunately, all of this misinformation and fake news becomes quite appealing and it gets a lot of spread. So one of the things WhatsApp has done is limit the number of forwarding of messages you can do to prevent things going viral to some extent uh, through WhatsApp with fake information. So, you know, you, that's another role of a pharmacist as well, is to really try and debunk these myths about what medicines you can take. And it's led to loss of life. It's extremely serious. Rumors on Facebook about essentially taking preventative cures and preventative elixirs that ended up just being toxic levels of ethanol. And 44 people in Iran ended up consuming it and dying, thinking that that was going to prevent them from catching the virus. So you have all extremes in terms of full-on COVID deniers, which then just makes the transmission rate so much higher because no interventions or precautions are being taken, but also going the other way and, and making people excessively fearful so that such that they take unlicensed remedies is equally dangerous. So... That is going to be a tremendous challenge. I think pharmacists are are a great resource for the public. They're in the community. They can have these conversations, but there's going to have to be a much wider government campaign. Tech has a huge responsibility in this, and, and it is good to see that they are taking measures, that they are linking NHS and other verified sites for people to look at and identifying, at least to some extent, some misinformation. But my concern is just like a not enough. It's just barely making a dent on that whole issue. And none of the solutions are that straightforward or easy. But I think if we return to that idea about what lessons can we learn in the last six months, the danger of misinformation times of crisis, I think, has to be one of them. And that kind of brings me on to the last question. So pharmacists have been at the forefront of the pandemic dealing with the public while GP surgeries have been closed and they've been able to do virtual consultations while pharmacies have remained open. What has this experience shown us about the importance of the role of pharmacists? Historically, again, pharmacists have been really at the heart of their communities and available for people, especially in times of crisis. So even during the plague, it was many of the GPs also put down their shutters and went off to the countryside. And it was the pharmacists of that time, the apothecaries who treated the sick. So in terms of the importance of the role of pharmacists, I think it's been tremendously obvious to the public that this is a place that they could get their essential medicines from, as well as that critical advice about how to look after themselves and how to reduce risk, interpretation of the guidance as well. What should I do about my elderly relatives? So a contact point that goes way beyond just the access to medicines, but also access to vital and key medical information and all the deliveries that pharmacists have done 
the effort overall has been amazing. I'm so proud of our colleagues, both in hospital and community, who have really stepped up to the plate and delivered far beyond with very little resource. And in the beginning, almost not really even having access to PPE and having to push for that really at every stage. And there have been, of course, our colleagues who have tragically lost their lives while serving the public throughout this pandemic and in service towards providing health for others. But really no one should be in their job as a pharmacist or a doctor expected to be a martyr. I think that ensuring in the future that pharmacists have the protection that they need is going to be vital in order for them to carry out their roles safely We talked a little bit earlier about some of the other aspects in which pharmacists have been so critical in this response, including ensuring that this whole problem with misinformation is being addressed. But now with the flu vaccines coming in this winter, ensuring that people who are at risk for essentially co-infection between flu and coronavirus get the vaccines that they need, and also to really ensure that if people are on the phone, can't get through to anyone else about their symptoms, they're concerned whether it's related to coronavirus or not, they're able to access them in multiple different ways. So whether that was coming in or over the phone, through deliveries, I mean, really the reach, if you think about it that way, pharmacists have had the widest. And as we always like to say, without an appointment as well. So really being able to respond real time to people's health needs as needed. And with their expertise, as medicines experts, also being able to weigh in about whether there should be anything they should be avoiding during this time and how to stay as fit and healthy while this pandemic is going on, whether that's smoking cessation, weight loss. We see that uh, obesity has a significant association to poor health outcomes. Public Health England has shown a report where patients with a BMI over 35 have a 40% increased death rate. So while the exact mechanics of this is not uh, fully understood yet, the association appears to be there. And that, of course, will need to be put under more rigorous review, but at least the early results definitely show the correlation that being overweight and obese is going to have significantly poor health outcomes. Not only for coronavirus, but in general, we know that it shortens life. So in supporting all of these non-clinical diseases and helping people to get healthy, pharmacists are fulfilling a role in terms of protecting them, at least to some extent, from a worse health outcome. And Richard Horton, who is very active in commenting on the pandemic and also published a book, and he's the editor of the the medical journal, The Lancet, and he has called it not the pandemic, but the syndemic, because people do, again, who are at highest risk are those with diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, all of these aspects. So there's so many different factors, and we've really maybe not prioritized those health concerns in the past enough, and now we're paying for it. So the contribution pharmacists make in ensuring people are able to optimize their health 
through ensuring that they are taking their medicines appropriately, but also in, in supporting lifestyle changes, I think is maybe not as glamorous, but it is certainly long-term one of the most important things. That was Oksana Pysik, lead for the outbreak of infectious diseases and the Global Citizenship Programme at University College London. If you'd like to hear Oksana and the three other experts that we had during the webinar discussing the long-term effects of COVID-19, you can find the highlights for this over on the CND website. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more from CND, you can subscribe to CND Podcasts on your Google or Apple Podcasts app and on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.